case. Hope not hates are basically controlling press. Hope not hate. An alluring name for those more concerned about social justice than truth. These backwards, these backwards thinking virtue signals. Hello and welcome back to the Hope Not Hate podcast. Thanks for joining us again. Um, We hope you've been enjoying it. We've got another good one for you today. Uh, I'm joined today by the usual suspects. I've got Martin whoa, Sphere. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Usual suspects. Using that word for the Muslims. Bit hard. Um, <laughs> um, we'll move on. God, that made me feel awkward. Um, I'm joined today with my colleagues, comrades, friends. <laughs> Better. Um, Sophia and Martin. Hello. How are we? Good, thank uh, you. Good. Good stuff. Uh, my name's Joe, and... Uh, Let's crack straight on today. We've got lots of really interesting stuff coming up today. There's some interesting anniversaries happening that uh, that we want to talk about. Um, but I thought I would start um, by ruining everyone's day again and going back to Tommy Robinson. Hey. As um, we, we haven't talked about him in a few hours. <laughs> so I thought we would crack right on. I only want to talk very briefly, as, as many of you have know, have been kind of regular listeners to the podcast or checking out the work we've been producing on the website um, we've been tracking this very, very closely. There's lots of worrying developments in terms of the scale of some of the street movements that seem to be developing off the back of the free Tommy Robinson stuff. For those of you who don't know, just a very brief recap. Um, Tommy Robinson, real name Stephen Yaxley Lennon, founder of the English Defence League, um, was recently imprisoned and off the back of that there's been a kind of... Wait, he was recently imprisoned for very good reasons. Yes, he was recently <laughs> imprisoned for very good reasons for, for uh, breaking reporting restrictions outside a... Uh, rape case in Leeds and this was the second time he'd done it he's gone back to prison he's absolutely right to be there but for some reason lots of people seem to think he shouldn't be there Um, and we've seen some big demonstrations some of which have had about 10,000 people at them but basically I just wanted to very briefly talk about some of the research we'd done this week I thought people might find it interesting Um, there's been a petition which has had well over 600,000 people sign it um, Across the world? Around the world. Oh, that's a very good lead-in, because that's where we're going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, well over 600,000 people have signed it. Um, we've seen hundreds of thousands of people tweeting either Free Tommy Robinson or hashtag Free Tommy Robinson. So we decided to do some data work and try to check out what what does this tell us about this kind of Free Tommy Robinson campaign. And it, and it threw up some really, really interesting stuff. Um, we knew it had caught fire in terms of the international far right. We knew this was being talked about all over the world. Did you expect it to? Um, we knew Tommy Robinson was high profile enough at the moment and over the last few years and had built up an international reputation in the last 10 years or so but the numbers that we were kind of running on this we were surprised at quite how international this this campaign had become I mean just to throw a few things out there I mean we looked at we looked at about 61,000 of the names on the petition um, out of about 610,000 at the time so quite a good sample on it And and we also looked at about half a million tweets that you either free Tommy Robinson or hashtag free Tommy Robinson or free Tommy. Um, and that was just in a matter of time. That was between the 25th of May and the 11th of June, so quite a small window. But it was a, a good-sized data sample. And, and if we start on the petition, right, the petition was calling for the Home Secretary to release him, and um, about 68% of that people had signed that petition were from the UK. So that's, that was lower than we thought it would be, perhaps, mm. in the first place. Mm. But uh, one thing is, on this petition, do people actually expect it to work, that you can sign a petition to release a person from a crime? I know. It's, well, exactly. I mean, it's not, it's not the biblical age, is it? Jesus I think, I think that. that's, a, that's a valuable <laughs> point, because well, I think there's a separation between like, the act of signing the petition and, like, like you say, the reality of, of, that com- of, of what, let's say, the base of the petition is about coming to fruition. But I actually think that's very unimportant for the movement and mm. for the impact that you can have with something like this. A, a petition, like, if you think about how activism takes place, like, 
in today's society, using a hashtag and sending out a tweet, signing a petition, they're really easy actions to do. And so that's where you can get yeah. huge numbers, um, especially for something that like that goes like well, we've seen something like this go viral. Mm-hmm. For all of those people, what is it? What is important to them? Is it that they've taken a stand individually? Is it that they've seen other people do it and they want to be part of a larger thing? Yeah. And, to, and to what extent are people doing this stuff blind? You know, people. They, I think people use the term like. Clicktivism um, is as, as, as in a quite That's disparaging a word way. That's for me. Clicktivism. It's like it's it's meant to be used in, in a, like a, not in a complimentary way. That it's mm. like people are sitting on their couches or on their phones, pressing mm-hmm. buttons to sh- uh, to demonstrate uh, their their values or their beliefs, but they're not willing to get up off their asses and actually do anything. Yeah. Unfortunately, in this case, this might actually. Um, yeah. I mean, take it's, them up. It, it, it's a really interesting point you make. Actually, there's some really really interesting social science research around this stuff and about how how the internet has fundamentally changed the nature of political activism. There's loads of fascinating research on this. And actually, I think more of it needs to be done on how it's affecting the far right. We've talked a bit about it in terms of some of our, what we call post-organisational. Like these thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, engaging in forms of far-right activism outside of traditional far-right networks or groups. Mm-hmm. These people aren't members of parties. They're not members of affiliated... They're not, most of them aren't officially EDL members and that sort of thing. Um, and people call it micro-donations of time, is, is what they, a lot of the social mm. scientists talk about. You can now have an ability to mobilise and act, become an activist for a political cause with a micro-donation. It could be signing a... You know, it could be these little things. And the question is what happens to these people once mm-hmm. they're in these movements. But, I mean, if we're just kind of just running a few of these numbers, I mean, 10% of the signatures on that petition were from America... 10% from Australia. Somehow it expects it to be more from the US. Well, actually, well, this that's a really important point, because when we then looked at the Twitter uh, use of the hashtag, um, because the petition was designed for the British government, the majority was obviously British that mm. were looking at it, so lots of people didn't bother signing it. But if we look at Twitter, only 40% of the people using the hashtag came from the UK, and in that sense, 35% were from America. So it had definitely caught light in America. And when we kind of looked at... Basically, we, we, we looked at... We analysed who were the people who were using the hashtag, who they all follow. So essentially, mm. we saw who had the most followers out of this selection of half a million. Um, unsurprisingly, Trump was number one. About 65% of mm. them all followed mm. Trump. I, I could have predicted that. Though. Yeah, I mean, that's not great surprise. But number three was Prison Planet, right, which is Paul Joseph Watson from InfoWars. Oh, wow. Um, so they had about 43% of the people that had used this hashtag also followed... Paul Joseph Watson, the fictional uh, can tales. Can I ask something, though? Mm-hmm. Don't you follow Paul Joseph Watson? No, of course, yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, it does. But it, what it does is it allows us to say um, the kind of political back or the political interests of the individuals, and, and like all the, the all of the top people in the top fifty or so out of the list of who, who they follow. Um, the vast majority American. I mean, forty-three out of the top fifty were Americans, which was interesting. But also, the vast majority of them come from some sort of far right or radical right or populist right background. Or researchers. Or researchers. But, but, but what it does show is it shows us that the, lot of the, the groundswell of support that Tommy's mm-hmm. receiving or Tommy Robinson's receiving is from a kind of people who are engaged in far activism of some sort. Um, the other really interesting number I just wanted to touch on was um, just 61% of it was men. Now, this is an inexact science, right? We use census data to work out what's usually a men's name and what's usually a woman's name. Mm. But just 61% of it. Now, that kind of reiterated something we saw on the ground. We obviously had researchers on the ground for all the events that have been going on. And we've noticed that there seems to be more women than traditionally, certainly the English Defence League or what you'd normally see on a far-right demonstration. Um, That's specific to Tommy Robinson? On the ones we've seen around Tommy Robinson, yeah. And I mean, the data showed kind of 38 39% was female That's probably. Um, and on the ground we saw, probably not that, not that high, but we still saw more women than we normally would. 
And, and this is partly around the way the issue has been framed, because of course it's not just about Tommy Robinson. A lot of these uh, things are around what they call Muslim grooming gangs. Mm. Um, of course, generally speaking, of these sorts of crimes, the victims are young women. Um, you're also seeing kind of lots of uh, you'll see mothers on the demonstrations talking about their children, how they want to protect their children. So yeah, we've seen a slight different gender balance. It's, a, it's a like very effective weaponization of like what you see a lot on the U.S. conservative right, which is the term family values. You know, something mm. that, yeah. that on the face of it seems like a really positive thing that anyone would be all about, but it, it's it's coded language to represent um, how they how they feel about. Um, like the nuclear family issues, yeah. like abortion and things like that, and here it's like a very clear weaponization of how to how to get mobilized people. Yeah. It's appeal to their sensibilities as a parent, as a mother, those sorts of things mm-hmm. is really working for them. Isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, and so I mean, basically, I want to wrap it up there. I don't want to talk about it for too long, but the takeaways from looking at all this sort of stuff is exactly what you say there. And but it, but it's also about saying it's a really interesting articulation of where the international far right is at the moment. Um, an event has happened in the UK that has been picked up by the international far right, used in their own respective countries, but the campaign has become international. The same rhetoric, the same terminology, the same phrasing, the same campaign points are being talked about in each respective country, whether or not it's Australia, America, Canada, the UK or parts of Europe. Um, these campaigns become international quickly. What you now have is you have tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people around the world engaging in far-right activism, of a, which, which has a very low-level input. You can, you, as I say, sign, as you mm-hmm. say, sign a petition. Um, but also it becomes very international very, very quickly. Um, so that's just a few things really interesting. If you want to see the full blog, actually, it's up on our American website at hopenothate.com. Um, and it's worth checking out and seeing. And that's through, uh, we've published that through our newsletter, actually, Control All Right Delete. So if you haven't signed up for that, we've got a newsletter which we publish every week looking at content about the alt-right. There's always new interesting content in there, but we also have sections where you can catch up on other stuff that people are publishing around the world on stuff that will be interesting. So do get on there and, and sign up to that. That's the plug over. Um, mm-hmm. So moving on to Italy, and that was very interesting, Joe. Um, <laughs> they sound, it didn't sound like you meant that. <laughs> no, I mean, it sounds very dangerous but interesting, and the part about the woman specifically um, and whether the far right will be able to harness this more widely is scary. Really scary. Um, so Italy, a lot of scary things are happening over there too. We're actually going to have a special about it, but today I wanted to talk about the Aquarius, uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, the Aquarius rescue ship carried 629 refugees and migrants. And Italy's new interior minister, Matteo Salva- Salvini, uh, blocked them f- at the port on June 11th. Um, the ship actually went to Malta first. They were refused there and they sent them to Italy. And then Italy blocked them and finally they docked in Spain. Um, Italy's new government, it's a coalition of the anti-establishment five-star movement and the far-right league party, are very intent on um, getting foreigners out of the country. Um, It's created an ugly atmosphere. I I actually, earlier this week, uh, Salvini um, called for a new census on the country's Roma community, which also worried a lot of people. And, however, he does say say something that... Very true, and he says that it's unfair that countries on the front line of the EU have had to carry the most burden of handling the migrant influx. And so, when Macron, uh, Emmanuel Macron from France, called uh, Italy irresponsible for turning away the Aquarius, you kind of wondered, um, you know, if he had the right to say that, considering France's own efforts. I think that's smart language used by Salvini to obfuscate and uh, remove some 
uh, sort of responsibility. You know, many countries share borders with other countries, and it's a sort of you know, there's, there's that doesn't replace having a comprehensive immigration policy and approach to like how you Im, like mm-hmm. uh, employ that. But according to the Dublin regulations, migrants are supposed to be taken into the first... They can apply for, you know, refugee status in the first country they reach in Europe. So often that is Italy. So I understand Salvini and people who supported his decision. I understand the frustration, even though, you know, blocking a ship full of migrants is not the way to go. Absolutely. So, I mean, I just had a couple of questions, which is sort of how they first ended up getting blocked at the ports. It's a, am I understanding, it was like an Italian boat? Uh, a rescue ship. Sorry, I, haven't, I, I don't understand don't your question. Like, um, you mean... So what? Isn't there some responsibility, given that like, the origin of the boat was from Italy, that they were, should have been, or there was an expectation they would be taken in an Italian port? Like, what makes this different from the, like, the rest of the current refugee and migrant crisis where boats have been... I think uh, Salvini was trying to prove a point, and I think he was uh, telling his party that you know we're not we're standing strong against them. A bit like Trump with you know the Muslim ban. Does that open them up to any kind of breach of EU regulations? I mean, yes, technically, but the EU is not um, hasn't had a cohesive policy on this, um, or at least its policy hasn't been accepted by all the EU countries. So you've had. an unfair distribution, you've had countries refusing refugees, and it's basically countries not stepping up at the moment, and it's kind of the hot potato that you're passing around. So even though what Salvini did um, is, I'm sure, against human rights, it's a human right violation, if nothing else, um, I don't see there being you know, a strong response from the EU. Mm. To me, it seems like massive, well, like the dehumanization of the individuals here as mm-hmm. a political maneuver. You know, he's clearly playing to his base. It's a new coalition government, like you said, that in any sort of coalition arrangement, there's a fragility there. Um, that he's probably trying to solidify his individual position and the party's position by taking a really um, strong, harsh stance on, this, on, yeah. on an yeah. issue that plays to, to their core support. Well, I tell you, some people who have been very welcoming of Salvini's positioning has uh, been another pet peeve of ours here, I hope, I hate Generation Identity. Um, I can see how they would like him, considering their past action. Oh, exactly. So, yeah, they had this... Uh, for those who don't know, Generation Identity is this European identitarian kind of far-right movement basically in the last year or so they've turned themselves into a racist thunderbirds where they kind of are hiring boats and helicopters and planes and flying around and being racist on an international scale and um they've um, obviously got well stuck into this aquarius story they welcome salvini's comments which is no great surprise but um they've also i mean they've put some pictures on their twitter where they're they've managed to get themselves another list this time a little rubber dinghy boat um so they're and they're this is kind of just off the back of a few weeks ago when they were in the alps and they yes, were having this, they spent weeks there, didn't they? Just well, it was like a nice ski holiday for racist middle class white people. Actually, that's not what's known as a ski holiday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very good, very good. But what school did you go to? <laughs> um, um, so they but, were in the Alps because just yeah, to explain. So they were in the Alps to try and stop migrants coming from Italy into France across the border. Mm-hmm. Um, they hired a helicopter, they hired a plane, they got these really natty little blue jackets they were all wearing. It really was very impressive. Um, and they've been doing the same again. What they've done is they've managed to go down in Valencia, I think they've put a banner saying... Um, well, it basically was the banner they had on the boat last year when they attempted to block refugee ships. Um, and failed mission. Failed mission, yeah. Well, read the blogs on the website, actually. That's another <laughs> plug for us. But, um, yeah, they put it, it's no way you will make Europe your home. And this was the banner they had on the side of their boat, the Sea Star. And they've basically just taken that same banner and just rested it on the rocks. 
um, as, as Recycling. the Recycling. Absolutely, yeah. They're nothing but, if not frugal. Um, so yeah, they've obviously been really, really excited about this. For them, they're seeing this as a legitimisation of their project. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very difficult to say whether or not there's any truth to that. They're certainly trying to claim credit and say that them having called for this sort of stuff. But what it, whether or not they can claim direct credit, I think there is an argument to be said about um, far-right groups who have rallied support around anti-immigrant sentiment for decades <coughs> have created populaces that are hostile to immigration, which governments are now responding to in this sort of horrible way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But sadly enough, I don't think the Ita- Italy's coalition government needs generation identity to do these, these kind of actions. No, not, certainly not anymore. On to more positive subjects. Well, Windrush. Uh, well, um, really depressing today, aren't we? Today, Friday, twenty-second uh, of June marks the seventieth anniversary of of what has become known as the origins of the Windrush generation, and that was um, immigrants from the Caribbean uh, at the time of British colony arriving to the UK um, on the request of the British government uh, to come and take up jobs to rebuild the country after the Second World War. This is um, a very important historical event. Um, in British history it's something that has been on people's minds a lot in recent times um, with the government having gone through a huge scandal um, surrounding the family members and descendants of the Windrush generation um, and now it's, we're in this sort of weird mixed mix territory like, like you said it's a, po- a very positive thing and a very important thing to be celebrating and showing recognition for it's actually something that the, the people from the Windrush generation have been campaigning for for a really long time mm. um really happy to see that there is some acknowledgement so at the positive end of the spectrum the government has committed to there will be now be an annual celebration to mark um this event and all of the contribution made by the Windrush generation moving forwards I mean I'm a bit cynical but a Windrush day for me doesn't it's like a quick fix it kind don't of don't be uh, cynical quick fix with a nice. bunch of money though. there's a bunch of money behind it half a million quid that will go to, to charity. celebrate the Windrush day yeah, yeah. The government has made a commitment to provide five hundred k. No, it's just that uh, we've seen how the government has handled the whole thing. And Reserve how... your judgment. Let's, yeah. let's, okay, let's find fine. out. Let's find out a little bit more. Sure. Um, yes, at the positive end of the spectrum, something that has been campaigned for for a very long time is coming to fruition. There will be formal recognition of the Windrush generation. There's going to be an annual event in Westminster Abbey. Um, things like that. You know, and I think we can all agree that. Any kind of uh, overt demonstration that is a that helps to promote the contribution of minority communities to this country is at, the, at a base level a positive thing. Yes, um, like you said, I think there is a cynical element to it, given what has happened in the last few months um, with regards to the Windrush generation. We saw Amber Rudd ousted as the Home Secretary, mm-hmm. even um, though she didn't put those policies into place. She, that was Theresa May. Yeah, we can, uh, that, that's definitely up for debate. But what, I mean, her replacement, Sajid Javid, has actually used really strong language um, to, to try and turn the government's current or oh, existing immigration policies away from what has been described as hostile um, in, in, in a different direction. He's also cleaning up a huge mess. There's like, um, I think the numbers that were quoted last week was this, is that there are as many as 63 uh, people from the Windrush generation who've been wrongly deported by the government. Like, that is Since really when? shocking. I guess this policy has kind of been in place for about four or five years in mm. different forms. Yeah. Um, but more worrying than the 63 number is they are now trawling back... Actually, I've got, I've got a proper date for you because they're now trawling back through 8,000 cases that go back as far as 2002. Wow. Um, and it's not just people being deported, it's people being denied um, different types of benefits, mm. treatment Losing on the NHS. Um, and like, like you said, Theresa May was the one who coined the phrase hostile environment. Um, 
and this has been a hugely problematic and impactful mm-hmm. negative experience for people who were literally came to this country to help rebuild the country. You know, like we can't discount that. Yeah. Um, I actually have a really interesting before we like go into the debate on it. <coughs> uh, a fact, just doing a little bit of research on this. A fact about the actual ship itself. The origins of the ship was a uh, was a Nazi ship. Was oh, it? Wow. Yeah. Oh, so ironic. originally, I've got the the vessel was used initially by the Nazi elite as a cruise ship named the Monterosa. And once World War Two broke out, it became a Nazi troop ship before being captured by the Allies. Um, and re- the British basically held on to it and retrofitted it and became the boat that brought the Windrush generation here. I didn't know that. My interesting fact about the Windrush is, this is one I always... Because it always says it's the first, right? But it just wasn't the first, uh, without being like a pedantic truth historian. That. Yeah, I know, truth that. No, it wasn't. Uh, in March in my March 47, the, uh, the Ormond arrived from the West Indies in Liverpool. So it actually beat it to us. Sorry, which ship? Uh, a ship called the Ormond. Um, I don't know if I've done so why don't we call right. it the Almond generation well, yeah, I do wonder like, it doesn't matter you, if the tongue is well you'd be a bit miffed wouldn't you if you were on the Ormond and you arrived in Liverpool and everyone was talking about the wind rush you'd be a bit like what about me like, um, so shout out to the Ormond generation <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know actually there was something I've, I haven't been through it yet so I don't want to kind of recommend it too closely but um, there was a new wind rush exhibition at the British Library I saw the other day that they've put up so that's in there that's free so if anyone's interested that's probably worth checking yeah, out that stuff I mean, in the British Library is always great I agree with you Martin when you said you know recognition is important having those you know ceremonial events at Westminster having exhibitions but at the same time I don't want it to be a, a kind of quick gesture to fix a tiny proportion of those affected by the hostile environment policy. Yeah, no, I complete, that's completely fair. It's not, a, it can't be used as a... You're really bringing it down today, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, you know... I mean, no, you're right. When you read the stories of um, not only people who came as part of the, of the Windrush generation, but also the more harrowing stories now of those who have suffered deportation as a yeah. consequence, the way in which it's decimated relationships between like a country like Jamaica and the UK is, is really, really... Um, depressing and like like you said it has a much larger impact than can be fixed with a day of celebration um there are people who are who who were deported in the last two to five years whose situations still haven't been resolved they may never come back to the uk who knows like the paperwork and all this stuff and you know we've seen rhetoric in parliament like they'll be offered compensation um Mm. they will be given the, the the right now they the said right that about Grenfell too, right? And look how that's turned out a year later. You're I mean, on, you're on fire. <laughs> we'll, we'll package this podcast up and send it down to 10 Downing Street and play <laughs> it through a halo, maybe. No, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm no, good. I like it. Yeah. We can't, yeah, it's, it's important to not let um, superficial gestures uh, paper over the cracks. Um, but, you know, also a good opportunity to stop and pay homage to the people that came celebrate their stories talk about the contributions that they made of, of which there's like there's hundreds I've just done a little bit of research scratched the surface and like I'm just really excited to like learn a little bit more about, about their contribution to British society as well it's not something I know Same. a great deal about yeah. the only thing I'd like to plug it because I always say it's one of my favourite novels this is uh, amazing it's quite a short little novel called The, Lo- the Lonely Londoners by Samuel Selvan. I think I might have even plugged it on this podcast before. <laughs> but um, it's a really, really lovely novel about uh, West Indians who arrive in, in kind of... It came out in 1956. But it's about kind of the fir- this guy who spent his first 10 years in London mm. after the Windrush and how, how the kind of the struggles they felt, the racism they felt, housing policies, government policies, the kind of street-level racism they felt on a regular basis. It's a really beautiful novel. Uh, mm. So I'd definitely recommend and checking it out. And since we're plugging, we're also publishing a piece by our researcher, Rosie Carter, Day about Windrush, so I definitely recommend a read. Absolutely, and the last thing I think to say on that is um, 
it was one of those things in the with the recent uh, blow up in news coverage about um, the crisis facing uh, the Windrush generation. We and we covered this on the podcast, I think, a few episodes back. Was like we saw a fairly unified response from commentators across the political spectrum, uh, which is. A unique situation, especially okay, in our Okay, I'm going to have to put my crisis. cynical hat again. I feel like a few of those just saw the way the wind was blowing and kind of chimmed in. Where the wind rush was blowing. Oh, that is awful. Cut that. Can we cut that? <laughs> that is awful. We actually have two very interesting interviews today. One with Dawn Livingston, who... Uh, I didn't know Dawn didn't... Shout out Dawn. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. her, her parents actually were of the wind rush generation. She was the first one... Uh, born in the UK from her family and um, she she has some very interesting reflections on the impact the Windrush scandal has had uh, and we also have Elizabeth Pop who is not of the Windrush generation or of the descendants <laughs> but she is an immigrant and uh, she's been very uh, involved in our democratic uh, engagement and she has some thoughts about the impact on the EU citizens in the UK. I was going to say, that was a turn up for the book. I didn't realise Elizabeth was West Indian. That's <laughs> <laughs> a little turn up for the books. No, not quite. Um... Um, brilliant. Oh, that sounds great. Let's have a listen. So, Don, what does Windrush mean to you? It's significant because my parents were of the Windrush generation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to be very significant to me as being part of the first generation of black people born in this country. Okay. Um, of Windrush mm-hmm. parents. Were you aware of, like, was Windrush something you discussed before it became a scandal? Not really. Um, when you had specific things that were going on, Windrush may have been relevant and would have then become part of the topic when you're discussing maybe other things around um, black migration. Um, But no, it wasn't, you know, something that we talked about on a regular basis. And were you aware of... I mean, you must have uh, people in the community who were also part of the Windrush generation or children of them. Um, Was there any... Were there any whispers of uh, hostile environment policies or things that affected them? Um... Amongst um, my community, so that's, you know, people who look like me, black people, um, we already know that there have been discrete deportations um, that have been going on, that there are contracts uh, or arrangements maybe would be um, um, a better word, between airlines and the people who are responsible for looking at immigration status and that many people have been uh, you know collected and deported without recourse to any sort of legal um, you know legal rights legal comeback legal appeals Um, so we know about that we've seen that we've been on flights where they've had you know people that are being deported so Prior to Windrush, we had the environment, the, the hostile environment going on, and it was something that most people had to deal with, if not directly, um, you know, indirectly with friends and family or other people that they knew. Did it impact you uh, specifically in any way? Not specifically, um, but I've known of people, people I know. Hmm. Yeah, so not directly my family, 
but I do know people and I've had acquaintances and people that I know that know people or have had their family members mm. um, involved. Um, so not directly, but quite a lot indirectly. Okay. And what about in your own family? I mean, you it must be three very different generations. I mean, you, you yourself, you're a grandmother, and your parents came into the country, and you were the first generation. Do you all see Windrush or immigration or this country differently? I think Windrush would um, cause people who may not have been looking at... Uh, black people's status around immigration. Um, this Windrush scandal has caused more people to look at it, more people to be affected by the detrimental um, actions around you know, the Windrush scandal. So yes, I think it's it's made people realise just how precarious um, you know our acceptance or our integration is. Mm-hmm. And do your children see it the same way? I think they do. I think Windrush, these sorts of scandals make the second generation of, uh, of, of children born um, after Windrush who have more of a settled experience. This actually does reflect on their everyday life. Um, we have to conclude that discrimination and racism is still out there, it's still institutionalised, it's still um, very uh, covert, but it still affects our lives day to day. Um, and this sort of scandal reminds us of just how much. And th was the Brexit, was the referendum another moment of realisation when it came to racism? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, the concerns which are going to be concerns, not just around discrimination uh, as, as per race, but discrimination on any grounds. Um, at the moment, we have EU laws, and although very difficult to prove, and many people uh, you know, are unable, have not the resources to enact them, at least they exist. Um, this uh, threat of uh, losing those legislation, the thought that we wouldn't have that protection, means that not only would we not be able to do anything about discrimination, but that if you can't do anything about discrimination, it starts to affect your human rights. And black people have not had human rights um, even longer than white people. Um, so, you know, it's almost as if you can see that retrograde, that backward movement of you know any sort of inclusivity, any sort of celebration of diversity, and that re-emergence of acceptable racism. So Elizabeth, you're an immigrant in this country. What does Windrush, what did the Windrush scandal mean to you? Well, hearing about the Windrush scandal for the first time um, didn't come through the media, came from examples from communities themselves. When, uh, as you said, you're a migrant, you kind of go around other migrants, you hear from migrant communities, uh, from campaign groups. So I kind of knew about these um, examples and the tragedy that people were going for for a while as such. But once you read it in the media, the extent of it, then the sympathy uh, that came from civil society, Society and some sectors of the media that maybe some of us weren't necessarily expecting, it came. It all got into. I think we can say the Daily Mail. <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed, the Daily Mail and, and many others. It kind of got into focus the fact that 
um, people care about other people. They care about the contribution they made to this country. They care about their individual situation. And they care about how the state treats people, whether they've been citizens or th whether they've been long-term residents. Now, Sofia, you have to bear in mind that when I came to Britain for the first time... I was time, actually going to <laughs> ask you, what, what kind of background are you coming from? Well, when I, I'm uh, originally from Romania, but I tell people that I was made in Britain. And I say this because although I was a journalist and um, a campaigner in Romania, it's only being in Britain and working on it, hope not hate, that brings into focus that element of community organizing and political mobilizing. So making sure that we bring from the grassroots up local issues, we bring people together and we put in focus stories, narratives and just a positive vision about the country and communities we want to be. So you have to bear in mind, as I said, that um, you know, 11 years ago when I came for the first time, um, things weren't quite as um, hostile as they are at the moment. Uh, people didn't ask you where you're from, where when are you planning on going back? But then things started changing around 2014 when um, you had the European elections, the UKIP was coming uh, on the horizon. And then uh, the, some of the messages that resonated with people, the very, the, very much the Windrush generation, no blacks, no Irish, uh, no dogs, so on and so forth, uh, all, all of a sudden applied to me, applied to Eastern European nationals, uh, applied to us being described in the national media as someone who's part of an invasion, someone who takes on jobs, someone who's not necessarily seen as a human and someone who loves this country but as um, a burden so for you it was post 2014 that that you noticed a significant change for your community specifically it was very much so it was the transition to romanian and bulgarians not needing uh, further documentation in order to take up employment and seeing the reaction that people had to the scandal that was the way people were treated in the win regeneration brought that hope that I shouldn't necessarily have been surprised because I have not had we run research and we know that people have become so much more positive about immigration and seeing uh, migrants as part of the fabric of their communities mm -hmm. by seeing local media, national media, seeing politicians talk about the fact that we need to have a conversation and we need to address injustice was, was encouraging. Brilliant. I think we should probably wrap that up there. Um, that's the end of another podcast. I think football game's about to start. We should go watch <laughs> yeah, that. absolutely. Yeah. Um, thanks for listening. Uh, as always, please, as always, plug it. Tell your friends. Uh, lots of you have been writing very nice things on iTunes. Not enough of you, though, <laughs> but um, some of you have. So make sure you can do that's good for us. It, it boosts it up, and other people get to see it. Um, share it on social media. All those usual things. Um, brilliant stuff. Um, thank you very much for listening, and please join us next week. <laughs>